with condo conversions, I think it's important to realize uh, that there is a process that has to be followed. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Welcome once again to the Real Estate Law Podcast. My name is Jason Muth, and we are here with attorney broker Rory Gill from Next Home Title Town Real Estate and Urban Village Legal in Boston. Hello, Rory. Great to see you, Jason. Excellent to see you again. Uh, I feel like we just did this, but that's because we did. This is part two of a uh, two-part podcast series on condo conversions. So we decided to split it up into two little easy to digest doses uh, because who wants to listen to hour-long podcasts? I think shorter is better. But so we can continue on with the last part of it. And we talked last time about condominium conversions, um, what they are and when they make sense. And we had a lot of great news for property owners who are interested in doing a condo conversion. The process on one hand is is not as intimidating as it sounds. And it's also a great way to get lots of value out of a great number of properties, certainly in the Boston metropolitan area. And we also ended with great news because under, at least in Massachusetts, the process is pretty straightforward. It's something that anybody can do. It takes a couple of professionals. It does take some work. The process itself is not a barrier for, uh, for most people who want to do a condominium conversion. And we're going to quickly end that great mood today. We're going to talk about some of the restrictions that are out there that make the process a bit more difficult. And we'll talk about some of the municipalities that are known to be um, very difficult Mm -hmm. uh, to work in with condominium conversions. So, Um, yeah, we'll end on the down note with all the legal stuff that everyone's got to worry about. So we'll, we'll end on right. the down note here. And we're talking, we say down note from the perspective of uh, people who own pro- multifamily properties that they're interested in converting into condominium units. Um, right, there's actually rules. rules. Yeah. There's actually there's, rules they have to follow. Yes. There are rules they have to problems and limitations and times when they can't um, do a condo conversion. Um, mm-hmm. And this happens just because, you know, when condominiums were a legal innovation, they were great for lots of potential buyers out there who are interested in purchasing property in urban markets and neighborhoods um, where there were not a great number of single family homes available. So it was a great innovation, allowed a bunch of buyers to enter the market, but that came at the expense of the existing tenants of the multifamily projects. And there was a wave of mass evictions um, to make way for condo conversions. Um, and it became pretty quickly apparent that the condom conversion craze needed to be curtailed a little bit. And then we have the so we have the Condominium Conversion Act of 1983 that um, reined in some of the excesses and gave um, protections to tenants um, that that are in the way of some of these condo conversions. So the Conversion Act of 1983, which I, I learned is just a few years before. Uh, condo conversions really aggressively happening uh, near here. They started in Puerto Rico, which I learned in the previous episode as well. I had no idea, but I thought this was something that's been going on for decades and decades, but apparently it's only been going on for the past, you know, three, four decades. uh, If they just passed a a law in 1983, which was probably a couple of years after it started to rein in some of the craziness that the developers uh, had shown for the first years of converting condos. 
you know, what we're talking about with these protections are very Massachusetts specific. So that's a Massachusetts specific act. Mm. But there are regulations that exist in a number of states, um, especially where there is competitive um, housing inventory in urban areas um, to protect tenants um, and give them at least a fair shot at home ownership or just having a place to stay. Right. Now, in the episode that precedes this one, uh, we talked about what is a condo conversion? Why would you want to do it? What kind of planning is involved? And then the basic items that are needed for a condo conversion. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that just yet, go back and go find that episode. Uh, It's probably the one preceding this uh, in the podcast feed, or if you're watching this on YouTube, it should be relatively easy to find. We're wearing the same stuff, right? Because we recorded it the same day. My plants over there, you can see them right there. Those are my seed starters for for out front. Those are going to be in this episode as well because we're recording everything, you know, all at once for these two episodes. But uh, with condo conversions, I think it's important to realize uh, that there is a process that has to be followed. And, you know, one of the one of the basic elements of all condo conversions, at least here in Mass, here in New England, other states, things might be a little bit different. But, you know, the three items that I learned that you need for every condo conversion is you need a master plan, which, you know, is when you hire the architect and surveyor and uh, they figure out exactly what you have going on here and they divide up the property, um, you know, in in the best way uh, that they see fit. And then that gets filed. You have the master deed, which is the description of the units and who owns what. uh, And that's where an attorney comes in to help prepare that. And then you have the declaration of trust, which is how the condominium is managed and the rules uh, that are involved that's also prepared by an attorney. I know that those things are, are pretty common when you're looking for condos here in the city. Like if you're working for a real estate agent and you are out there shopping for condos, you know, one of the very first things that people uh, will ask for is, can I see the condo docs, right? Mm-hmm. And the condo docs collectively, is that those three things? Yep, those are the foundation. And depending on the age of the condo, you may have additional amendments um, adjusting those. So if you're doing a search to the Registry of Deeds, be on the lookout for amendments and additional rules and regulations mm-hmm. that have been added over time. But yes, those three documents form the basis of the condo docs. Yeah, and the condo docs are important because they, you know, they'll spell out everything. They'll talk about the percent ownership. Um, you know, for each unit within the building, which will uh, lead toward votes that the building has to take should also be reflected in the percentage of the condo fees that are paid by each unit. Know things about pets, you'll know things about renting it, you'll know things about subleases, you'll know things about, you know, what else is in there? I mean, it it could be anything, right? You know, for roof decks, if the roof needs to be repaired, who's responsible for tearing up the roof deck and who has to pay to reinstall the roof deck? Who is responsible for the exterior balconies? How does parking work um, for the f- facility? Um, in case of emergency, who has access to the interior of your unit? Um, mm-hmm. Can you smoke in your unit? All of these are rules that can be enforced in the condo documents, which is why it's always important to make sure that if you're buying a condo to live in, it's compatible with how you live your life. And if you're buying a condominium unit to rent to make sure that there are no restrictions that'll get in your way um, in renting out the unit. Right. And I I bet you that the way that condo docs are written actually might affect resale value, because if you're in a market that is a high rental market or or high vacation rental market, like on the Cape, um, Mm -hmm. if you're owning a unit in a condo association and for some reason there's a massive restrictions 
on rentals. Like, let's say you can only rent to people for 30 day periods, you know, or for you can't rent to them on a nightly basis. You know, that might, they do that on purpose, you know, because they might not want units to be rented out on, on a short term basis, but that could affect resale because it might take a lot of people out of a buyer pool. So it may limit certain buyers from um, being interested in purchasing their property, but some of those rules actually are there to allow for more lending options on units in the buildings. Some lenders will not issue mortgages um, to people in buildings where they allow short-term rentals um, because the lenders mm-hmm. are concerned about the additional risk um, that opposes to them or just under um, underwriting that's been imposed on them. So these things, these things do cut both ways. So it's important to make sure it's in line with what your interest um, is. And even where... Um, that's not necessarily rest, um, a restriction. Many people don't want to live in a building where there are a high number of renters, and it also limits lending options. So there are constraints that exist um, to increase value, and there are constraints that may depress value. Um, and it's important to take a close look just to make sure it's compatible with your intent. Right. I'll give you know personal stories once again. Um, I remember our our place here in Boston. This was not a condo conversion. Uh, where we're living now, it was a new construction building, but I, there was a certain loan product I couldn't qualify for because no units had closed yet in the building. And you know, I didn't fully understand why. Um, and I ended up refinancing within a year or two anyway, but like I had to get like an adjustable rate loan at the very beginning. They were keeping it like as a portfolio loan. And for some reason, since there was nothing was, it was all owned by the same person, right? Like all the units were owned by the developer and there was some issue as to why they couldn't give me the 30-year fixed um, off the start. In, in some of these rules and regulations, um, though they have been modernized, um, many of the existing federal underwriting requirements, imagine a condominium complex out in the suburbs, um, which mm-hmm. does no favors to smaller condo complexes, three-unit buildings in the city. They've Many of the rules are written to, you know, with just that big box of 100 units in mind, um, and they just don't apply. For example, sometimes there are restrictions on loans if one person owns more than a certain percentage of units in the building. But if there are only three units, it's pretty easy for somebody to uh, reach a 40 or 50 percent ownership stake um, in one particular yep. building. Yeah. And, you know, also in terms of lending, it's it's probably good to look at local lenders for reasons like this, because they do know the local markets better than some of the national companies. This isn't to disparage anybody, obviously. I mean, there's, you know, there's large banks that offer great loan products. But, you know, speaking personally, you know, we were working with a mortgage broker um, on uh, our condo province town. And, um, you know, during the due diligence process, like there was something caught very late in the process that they actually couldn't end up extending financing. So, you know, we had a scramble uh, and we actually got financing with uh, a local bank um, on the Cape that understands uh, the local rental markets a little bit better. I think that they were keeping the loan in-house as well. So they were able to be a little more forgiving for rental properties, which literally everything on the Cape is basically a rental property. So going with a local company might have helped uh, get that loan closed and then eventually, eventually refinanced. I know that sometimes you and I will talk about, uh, you know, closings that you're doing and uh, you'll be working with some lenders that insist that certain, uh, certain, certain neighborhoods within Boston are their own towns, right? And 
you've had situations that they just don't fully know the local neighborhood and there there's some things that you have to file paperwork that says that Dorchester and Boston are basically the same thing, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, yes, I've, I've definitely encountered lenders who think everything is a special case and they need an attorney affidavit attesting under the pains and penalties of perjury that Dorchester is not a separate municipality from Boston. A little completely absurd. I want to send them a link to a Wikipedia article, but <laughs> it, it accomplishes much the same. Um, and with the condos, I don't want to overstate the underwriting complexity. Not every condo is a special case, but sometimes the the rules and regulations of a particular condo may make it more difficult to get a tradable loan and you may be better served with a variable rate mortgage or a mortgage with a local lender. Yeah. And like anything there, you know, there's a starting point. Like if you're going to do a condo conversion or you're an attorney that works in a condo association, you know, there's kind of like the starting point. That's the basis for everything. And then there's going to be some variant for, you know, to whatever extent uh, that you, you need to work with a neighbor or work with another property or work with the city on. And that's where attorneys come in because that's where you guys understand all the legal limitations and all the things to, to watch out for um, in each of these situations because nothing is ever as standard as we all kind of wish it, it should be. In going down that road, talk about some of the legal limits to condo associations. Like, if you're going to do a conversion or if you live in a condo or you live in an apartment that's getting converted, like what are some limitations to how that conversion could happen? Sure. So this is kind of getting back to the thrust of what I wanted to leave the listeners with today. And that is the the restrictions exist to protect the existing tenants. So what I referenced earlier, the Condominium Act of Condominium Conversion Act of 1983, um, that covers the entire state for buildings of four or more units. So for now, if you're thinking about converting a duplex or a three family, you can pay attention to something else for the next three minutes, but buildings that are four or more units have special rules um, and give instantly um, additional rights to the current tenants. And it starts with letter of intent. You need to inform the existing tenants in writing um, at least a year before you do the condo conversion that you intend to to do the condo conversion. This vests them with an awareness of what's going on and with certain additional rights. So for that year, you cannot evict them unless they, except for non-payment of rent or a violation of their lease. So their lease terms will be automatically extended um, to at least a year from when you gave that notice. And you also can't jack up their rent more than a, a state prescribed formula. So you can't just try to double their rent um, to do a backdoor eviction of the existing tenant. So they are in, immediately vested with certain rights um, to, to stay where they are. And certain populations get more than that. So if you're dealing with somebody who's over the age of 62 or handicapped, they get two years mm-hmm. to, to find a spot. And that actually can be doubled up to four years if they can demonstrate that they cannot find a similar housing arrangement in the same municipality. So it's- Pause one second yes. there. Mm-hmm. So that means that if you buy if you buy a building mm-hmm. and there's tenants in the building that yes. because sometimes people will buy a building and they'll want it vacant, right? Mm-hmm. So but but a seller doesn't have to deliver it that way. I mean it could be part of the agreement, like that there's currently paying tenants that are on a lease that you're gonna assume the lease. But let's say that somebody is a senior in apartment number two out of you know four units and you want to convert this to condos, you take over ownership you announce it to everybody. And in theory, what you just said there is that there might be a condo conversion might not happen for four more years. That'd be right. 
That's understood. So the conversion may, the conversion itself may happen, but you cannot remove a tenant or increase their rent by a certain amount for that period of time. So you can effectuate the conversion and do the legal, legal chopping up of the building, but that the tenant in that unit is entitled to stay. So mm-hmm. it makes it much more difficult to, to sell off that particular unit to a third party um, while they're still there. So the other, if it's a four unit building, you could convert the whole building to condos. If the senior is in unit two and the other three units are vacant, you've given the notice, they're having a hard time finding a place. In theory, you could sell, you could convert and sell the other three units and then you still own unit number two, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you can at least, you know, make your money on the other three units and get those sold off. And then now you have a tenant in unit two for a finite period of time until you could then sell that unit off. Yes, in most municipalities. So under this general statewide rule, there would be no problem with doing that. Um, the statewide rule just prohibits you from removing tenants. But it does, mm-hmm. the statewide rule also gives some additional rights. So for example, Um, an existing tenant has the right of first refusal for the unit that they're living in. So if you went to go sell new condo conversion with the existing tenants and you found a buyer, that the existing tenant will have 90 days to match that offer and purchase the unit that they live in. So so for the regular process, this also means that first sales can take quite a bit longer um, than is normal in the market. so in theory, so, I could I could offer as a buyer on that property, and mm-hmm. my offer is accepted, but it's contingent upon the current tenant not matching the offer within 90 days. So I actually, as a buyer, might be waiting three months until I know if I actually have that unit. That's correct. So any offer that's accepted would be contingent on the current tenant's um, uh, waiver of right of right of first refusal, um, which oh. can take up to 90 days unless they voluntarily sign away their rights earlier, which would be usually in exchange for something else. Yeah. So if you're out there buying condos, just make sure that you're getting one that's vacant or if or you know what the terms are of the people who live there, if they currently live there. And then if time the time comes and that that existing tenant has to go, you owe them relocation money. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's about $750 per um, tenant or $1,000 if they are um, handicapped or over the age of 62. Okay. And so that is like the, what I just outlined there is the bare minimum rule. It applies to all municipalities for buildings that are four or more units. But that's not where the story ends because municipalities can enact stricter regulations than that, and many of them have. So Boston, for example, will give existing tenants um, that are in the protected category up to five years um, in the the building that they're currently in right now. So it's five years of not being able to be evicted and not being able to raise the rent more than the state prescribed formula. But that also is kind of one of the, the light additional regulations. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are rules in the list I see here. We have Abington Act in Amherst, Brookline, Haverhill, Lexington, Malden, Marlborough, New Bedford, Newburyport, um, and some others have additional regulations. And the real, and that could be, um, take a look at those particular towns to see if that means properties smaller than that are included, or if the, the, the timing is more complicated, um, or if the amount that's owed to them is more um, than 
than the state requires. Um, but the real killer out there right now, the, town, the municipality with the strictest regulations by far is Somerville. Um, mm-hmm. Somerville's new rules that went into effect in 2019 are actually being challenged in court, but they basically require municipal approval of every condo conversion here. So before you go ahead and even attempt a condo conversion in Somerville, you have to pass it um, by the city and they are not likely to approve it at this time. The city, the voters of Somerville determined that the wave of condominium conversions recently have displaced too many tenants. That's the political judgment made by um, Somerville, but they're making it almost impossible to do condo conversions in Somerville as of 2019. Yeah, well, it's a clear statement. I mean, there's a lot of development happening in Somerville, but it's much more on a, on a wider scale. Uh, but, you know, they're right next to Boston, but they make their own rules. I mean, like, you know, during COVID restrictions, uh, you know, they, the, the gyms in Somerville were opening up a lot less um, quickly than the ones elsewhere. But, you know, they, they're entitled. It's, it's They're their own city, right? Yep. They're so, city or town. They're a city, right? They're a city, yes. So you want to take a look. You want to take a look at um, the particular community that you're, you're hoping to do the condo conversion in, um, look in advance to see what supplemental rules that they have. They may just be a, a minor tweak from the statewide rule mm-hmm. or it might be a, a major obstacle, as in the case of Somerville. So take a look at or, that. Or I have an idea. Yes. You can retain an attorney to do that, right? That's kind of that, what you get paid for when you're, when you're being hired to do a condo conversion. That is absolutely the attorney's job um, to know and to understand. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about another couple uh, legal issues. Uh, you know, is there a limitation as to how many units can be in a condo association? No. No, not at all. Nope. In cases of usually new development, if you're going to build one condo building, but you, you intend to build more, there are phasing rules. So if you wanted to mm-hmm. launch a condo with 100 units, but have it grow to 200, there's a phasing process there. That is usually not talked about very much in the condo conversion aspect where we're talking about existing buildings that are um, being made into condo units, um, but new developments have phasing rules. Maybe some additional fees based on the municipality. So when we mentioned the master deed, um, master plan and declaration of trust. Um, the fees are pretty modest to record them with the registry of deeds, but Boston, for example, charges a supplemental tax of $500 per unit, um, not excluding the first unit, which in the grand scheme of things is not a terribly big payment um, in real estate, but for a larger project that can add up to um, an additional cost. Everything can add up. It should not be a make or break. I mean, if you're worried about $500 fees for your four units in the condo building that you want to convert, maybe you should be doing something else. Yes. If the $500 is the tipping point, your budget's a little too narrow and a little too tight and thin. Um, yeah. So, it, but now, that's just an attempt for, for to Boston to recover a bit of the cost. What are, Shocker. <laughs> what are some other considerations uh, as we kind of wrap this up and talk, uh, we've been talking about the legal considerations of uh, condo conversions? Mm-hmm. Um, some of this is in the weeds, but if your property you're working on is registered land, about um, 10% of land in Massachusetts is registered land, um, then you need to submit it, submit your plans for condo conversion to the land court for approval. Um, mm-hmm. They take several months to do this and they have a knack for losing the file. So you need to um, stay on the court to get approvals if you're unfortunate enough for it to be registered land or you could withdraw your property from registered land. All that you need to discuss with your attorney um, because there are some considerations in there as well. And then- Wait, what's registered land? 
Tell us what that is. Registered land um, is a quirk that exists in Massachusetts and only a few other states where your land ownership to your land is actually certified by the state where the whereas recorded land at the register of deeds, um, you, you could record almost anything. And that's just a reference point to determine who owns the land. Registered land is run by through the registry of deeds by the land court affirmatively declares that this person is in fact the owner. So the title's a little bit more secure. That's the benefit of registered land. Um, but it, everything that happens to registered land needs to be um, approved and scrutinized um, as a result. So for a condo association, I recommend withdrawing it from registered land. Also, if the future owners ever wanted to make an adjustment to the rules and regulations, they have to have everybody sign it and submit it to the, the land court and hopefully they'll review it within the six months before you have to go back and get new signatures for everybody else again. I've had that happen to me. That's pretty terrible too. Um, so registered land is just not functionally compatible with condo associations. Talk to your attorney about withdrawing your, your condo conversion from registered land before you go, but right. go ahead and do the conversion. And just the other odds and ends, the timing of the, the conversion also matters for some costs. Once a building is now divided into condominiums, the insurance on it needs to be a master policy instead of a multifamily policy, which can be more expensive. So if you have a vacant building and you want to um, do a conversion, wait to the last possible moment just so you're not incurring that extra uh, extra insurance cost before you sell it off. Right. It's a lot to think about condo conversions. You know, it, it seems really simple. Uh, it seems like you're just taking a couple of apartments in a building and just saying now they're condos and selling them off. But uh, there's obviously a lot more to it. Hopefully, if everyone's gotten to the point of this uh, podcast, uh, if you have not listened to the first part of the podcast, which is the previous episode, once again, uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to that one as well, because we talk more about what a condo conversion is. Um, and if you have any questions about any of this stuff, like how can uh, how can someone come find you, Rory? So for condo conversions, come talk to me at Urban Village Legal. Um, or if you wanted to do a market analysis, come talk to me at Next Home Title Town. Great. So hit Google, type in those words, Urban Village Legal, or type in Next Home Title Town. Find the website very easily. Or what is it? Is it Rory at each of those.com? Rory, everything comes to me. Everything's set up that way. It's I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> okay, great. Rory, thank you once again. Uh, you know, we've learned a ton about condo conversions. Clearly, you know a lot about this stuff because you've done uh, plenty of them. And I encourage anyone listening to this, uh, if you're working in Mass or New Hampshire, uh, reach out to Rory if you have questions. Uh, and I'm sure that he could figure out a way to get your project uh, moving along uh, the best way possible. So once again, I'm Jason Muth. Uh, this is the Real Estate Law Podcast. Uh, Rory, thanks so much again for all your time today. And thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, please subscribe to it. Uh, please like it if you're watching this video on YouTube. And we will look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you. See you next time. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures. And law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. 